The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let us open together to Matthew 5. Uh, we have been in uh, this month and previously starting in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Mount speaking uh, the words of Jesus speaking to us in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that famous uh, extended word where he sits on top of the Mount of Olives and gives his instruction to his disciples. We've been looking at that together. And uh, something of a personal reflection on this, especially based off of last week. Um, many of you made comment to me following last week. And uh, if you weren't here last week and you're interested to know, you can always uh, listen online. But last week, many of you commented about uh, the, a spiritual weight that you really felt from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, concerning meekness. And uh, uh, in my own reflection, sometimes you feel like the Lord Jesus is taking you to the woodshed with what he says to you. And uh, it, is, it is good and loving and right that he do so, but we do feel that weight sometimes. Uh, thankfully, uh, we're going to have a sense of direction on what are we supposed to do with that weight and why do we feel it anyway. Uh, we will have some direction on what to do with all of that. But uh, before we hear God's word, I just wonder if you just glance, if you just glance at verse 6. We're going to be speaking of righteousness today. And uh, just like meekness in verse 5, righteousness or righteous, we never really talk about people in a complimentary fashion as being, they're a righteous person. Because we often associate that with a negative connotation, don't we? We associate righteous with self-righteousness, and we just don't speak positively about people as being a righteous person. But righteous is a disposition that the Lord Jesus praises here. And so rather than react against an unbiblical understanding of righteous, thinking that it's only negative... Uh, if we do that, we're going to miss something essential for our Christian lives. And the Lord Jesus has such important words to speak to us, his people, today in Matthew chapter 5. Because this is the king addressing his people with what they must know to be citizens of his kingdom. And he speaks to us today about righteousness. And so let us prepare our hearts by, by praying and then hearing God's word this morning. Father, we bow before you today, so very thankful that you teach us in your word, so thankful that you reveal yourself to us. Yes, Lord, you reveal yourself in creation as the creator, but, but we can never know you personally just by looking at the sky and seeing the beauty of the fields. Lord, we need to know more than that. And that's why we're thankful that in the Bible, you reveal who you are and who we must be. And we thank you especially that in the scriptures, you reveal the Lord Jesus to us. And so, Father, as we sit under his teaching this morning, we pray that you would give to us ears that hear and a heart that is ready to receive all that you would teach us today. Lord, speak to us now in the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word in Matthew Chapter 5 uh, through verse 6. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. We've been studying these Beatitudes, and now we're on the fourth one in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes is he is speaking about who is the one who is really blessed. Who is the one who is truly happy, which is another way of translating this word for blessed. And we've said a number of times that people use the word blessed in such superfluous ways, totally throwing out, ignorant of what the word really means, thinking that they're blessed for this and blessed for that. And it's, it's used in so many ways that are actually inappropriate. But what does Jesus mean when he speaks of the one who is truly blessed and he has been explaining what the true citizen of his kingdom looks like in the Beatitudes? And true citizens of his kingdom, those who are truly blessed, are those, we've seen it together, we've been progressing through, and I hope you've noticed how the Beatitudes build on each other. They are connected and linked in a very essential way. Uh, We've been seeing that true citizens of the kingdom are those who are, in verse 3, poor in their spirit, who are, verse 4, those who mourn their sins. And as a result of it, verse 5, those who are meek before God. And so cycling back to this notion of feeling a weight when you approach the Beatitudes, uh, if you have been feeling that weight, that's a good thing. That is a good thing, actually. Uh, But the good news of the gospel, the very, very good news of the gospel is that you and I are not just supposed to feel a weight that paralyzes us and never moves us past the weight. We're never just supposed to feel so burdened all the time, but the purpose of the the weight that we feel is to make us to realize that if we are looking within ourselves, we will not find relief from that weight, but having felt the weight, having looked within and felt the fact that we are poor in our spirit, mourning our sins and being called to meek, the weight causes us to look outside of ourselves to the Lord Jesus. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is inviting you to be done with yourself, to let it empty you so that you might come to Jesus Christ to be filled. So we find that there is a transition here in verse 6. So far, the emphasis in the first three Beatitudes has been on what we lack and how we should feel because we realize that we lack these things. But having faced the reality of what we lack, in verse 6 comes the solution. We have felt the weight, we have felt the emptiness, and now comes the solution. And the solution comes when we look outside of ourselves to the Lord Jesus. The same Lord Jesus who says in verse 6, Blessed Those who are blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as 
as Jesus so often does in the Bible, because he's an excellent teacher, he uses physical metaphors and pictures and images to explain spiritual realities. And we totally understand the fact that hunger and thirst are fundamentally physical needs. We get that. But in Jesus' time, water was at a premium. And food is sometimes scarce. And because of that, there is an inherent risk in this fourth beatitude for us because we are so well watered and so well fed. We understand the concept of a well running dry, but if that happens, we might just drill a new one. When we're hungry, we just get some food. The utter desperation of this beatitude can miss us if we don't understand what Jesus is really talking about. These metaphors will lose their potency. Now, when you're really hungry, and uh, I don't know if you have ever taken up a spiritual discipline of fasting, perhaps you intentionally go without food. You plan not to eat. But when you don't plan not to eat and you don't eat, you have this growing sense of disgruntled. Uh, I was thinking about this, remembering that when I played college football at one point, our coach was so upset over a game that was a rivalry game and he wanted us to win so bad that he made us get back on the bus and he made us ride the bus for several hours before feeding us, okay? Which is on the verge of athlete abuse in my opinion. But Because we had played the whole game and he didn't let us eat you know, past noon so that you weren't full to play the game. Play the game, don't get to eat. Get on the bus, ride for hours and never giving an explanation of when food was going to come. Just a disgruntled sense of no food for the losers. Okay, that's pretty harsh. Uh, but that was like the best that I could think of in terms of experiencing that type of hunger. But if you put yourself in the place of these first century listeners, thinking about being hungry and thinking about being thirsty are somewhat regular occurrences. And the point that Jesus is making here is that when you have this sensation, it drives such a sense of desperation that you're going to change something to get at what you want. You're so hungry that you're desperate to eat. You're so thirsty that you're desperate to drink. And if you've been making your way through the Beatitudes, you're supposed to feel that sense of desperation. Having felt the poverty of spirit, having felt the mourning of my sin, having received the call to meekness, I must have the intent to change the direction that I've been going to satisfy my need. Jesus is speaking these words to us, and if we are understanding what he's saying, then we are not just hungry and thirsty in verse 6. If we are looking to ourselves to satisfy our deepest eternal longings, then we should come to verse 6 famished and utterly parched because we're not satisfied in ourselves. Jesus uses this sensation of hunger and thirst to depict the intensity of the Christian who is longing for righteousness. Longing for righteousness and finding that it's not within themselves. So where does it come from? Uh, what we're going to be looking at then is this notion of righteousness. Jesus uses this word righteousness. And I think very often that this is one of those words that we encounter in the Christian tradition 
We're not surprised by it because we're used to seeing it in the Bible. And yet, we don't really know what righteousness is all about. Righteousness, the topic, comes up constantly in the Bible. And in fact, if you were to scan through these three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus is constantly talking about righteousness. For example, if you skip ahead to Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus speaks about Christians being sometimes persecuted because of righteousness. And in chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus is calling on us to have righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 6, Verse 1, he warns us to beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. That's Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, we are told to seek God's kingdom and seek God's righteousness. And so Jesus is constantly talking about righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. And the theme of righteousness is all through the Bible. But what is righteousness? And what is the righteousness of God particularly? Because If we don't know what it is, how can we hunger and thirst for it? So what is righteousness? Well, the idea behind the biblical word righteousness most simply means conformity to a norm or the reality of what is right, what ought to be. Righteousness is what ought to be according to God. The righteousness of God represents things as they ought to be according to God. And if you were perhaps reading the Old Testament, you would read about God's righteousness associated with his covenant, that God makes and keeps a righteous covenant, and he is faithful to it. And the covenant of his grace represents that which ought to be. And the reason why it's important to understand the righteousness of God as a positive thing is because too often people only associate it with a negative thing. People only associate righteousness with judgment and justice. When in fact, the prophet Isaiah speaks of the fruit of righteousness is peace. The fruit of things as they ought to be, righteousness is peace. That's Isaiah 32 verse 17. Isaiah 45 verse 21 also says that God is righteous and a savior. That his righteousness reflects all that is good, all that is right, all that which ought to be is what God's righteousness is all about. And Jesus is saying that the people of God, the true followers of Jesus, the citizens of his kingdom must long for things as they ought to be according to God, must hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so righteousness is to be our desire. But how does the righteousness of God have anything to do with your life? Because God's righteousness is his rule, his reign, things as they ought to be, that which is right. What do you need from the righteousness of God? How is the righteousness of God important for you in such a way that we should desire it to hunger and thirst? And I want us to think about it in three ways. Three ways that we should hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. And the first way is, is that we should hunger and thirst for alien righteousness. Alien righteousness. 
You know, when someone is not a natural born citizen, they come into the country, we speak of them as being an alien. They are not natural. And God's righteousness is alien to us because we do not possess it in our fallen nature. We need it and we don't have it. And when we speak of God's alien righteousness, we speak of that which comes from outside of us and is received to us. And so this kind of righteousness is a righteousness that is longing to be made right with God. A righteousness that longs to be made right with God. I don't know how many times I have talked to people, usually in association with sickness or life-threatening illnesses, And their reflection on spiritual things is, I hope, I hope I've done enough, or I hope I'm good enough, or I I hope God's pleased with me. But this sense of alien righteousness answers the question of how we can be made right with God, how we can be made righteous before Him and accepted by Him. And this kind of righteousness is perhaps the most important kind of righteousness, and it's the righteousness that. Do you remember the name Martin Luther? He longed for so much. When he read the Bible, he would read about the righteousness of God, and he hated it because he only understood that to mean the justice of God. And Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, and he did as much as he could to perform. He would stay in the confessional for hours, and he would go days without food. He would do anything he could, pray and pray and pray, do as much as he could. But he found no relief for himself because he was looking within to establish his own righteousness. And he felt like God's righteousness was just this bar that he was constantly measured by and he had to attain for himself. And it drove him crazy. He understood God's righteousness to mean that I am only condemned by the justice of God. Until he understood through the teaching of the Bible that the righteousness of God is not a righteousness that we work up to attain for ourselves, but rather that which we receive by grace. To hunger and thirst for righteousness that we don't have, that is outside of us so that we can receive it. That's what the Lord Jesus is speaking of here, and that's what Luther was driving for. The alien righteousness of God, that is God's righteousness that we receive by grace, that declares us to be in a right standing with God. In verse 6, the gospel of Jesus Christ is in plain view. We need righteousness. We don't have it. We long for it. It comes from the outside, right? Because when you're hungry, you don't just sit around and, and think good thoughts about food and then satisfy your hunger from the, in the inside. That doesn't make any sense. It comes from without, to come within, to satisfy. That those who long to be accounted righteous before God, those who desire to be in a right standing with God know that they can't do it themselves. And dear friend, if you know that truth, that you need to be in a right standing with God, and you know that it doesn't come from within, Jesus would say to you, you are not far from the kingdom. You are not far from the kingdom. But what a sad thing it is to think of people who consider that they are sufficient within themselves to stand before God. 
But 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that we receive the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we become the righteousness of God. It comes from the outside. It is an alien righteousness that we receive by grace through faith. And when the gospel says what you hunger and thirst for, it will be provided freely and fully in the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is saying, are you hungry for that sense of a right relationship with God, a good standing with God, peace with God, settled conscience before God. If you are, you must know it comes from the outside. And if that is in good order, it is not only alien righteousness that the Lord Jesus is calling on us to hunger and thirst for, but also, secondly, and this is very important, personal righteousness. Personal righteousness. Because... The gospel not only brings forgiveness of sin, that's good and we love that. We should celebrate the forgiveness of sin. But the gospel not only brings forgiveness of sins, it also brings with it the power of the Holy Spirit to live in a right relationship with God. Did you know that the gospel is not just a get out of hell free card? The gospel is not just fire insurance. The gospel is the power, not only for the forgiveness of our sins, but the power of a transformed life. So what that means is, we cannot take Christ's gift of forgiveness, but neglect his demands for right living. So Jesus would ask us, how are you living how are you living? Are you living in a way that pursues righteousness? You know, the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9 says that we make it our aim to please God. To please God. Now, when I hear that, I'm transported back to being a child. And Lord knows I had my share of discipline by way of spankings. Okay? But worse than any spanking is to hear from my father, I'm disappointed in you. Worse than any amount of action upon the backside is the displeasure of my father. And the Apostle Paul is saying that it is a motivation for the sincere Christian life. Having our sins forgiven... Right? So that's, that's, that is at peace. We are not trying to please God to have him forgive our sins. No, no, no. That is a settled peace. And with a forgiven life, wanting to live a transformed life to please my heavenly father because I delight in his smile. Jesus wants you as a disciple to not just celebrate the forgiveness of your sins, but live for him. Live for him. To hunger and thirst for growing in personal righteousness to become more holy and more like Jesus so that I'm more loving so that I'm quicker to forgive so that I hold short accounts so that I'm seeking peace with my enemies so that I serve my wife so that I'm kind to others Jesus is calling forth your transformed life in your hungering and thirsting for personal righteousness so there is the alien righteousness of the gospel that comes from without and fills us within to forgive our sins. 
that gives us the power then to pursue personal righteousness and live a holy life. But I think we should also be disciples who are hungering and thirsting for a third kind. And I'll just touch on this one briefly, but I think it's legitimate, a, a social righteousness. A social righteousness. Longing for God to set right what is wrong, right? Because righteousness reflects that which ought to be, and there is so much in the world that should not be, that is. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have that sense of longing that things are not as they should be. You can look around for two seconds and find illustrations of that. Do we need another example of a national school shooting event? To break our hearts, 14 and 15-year-old children dying at the hands of a 16-year-old. Something is wrong. And in the heart of a disciple of Jesus, we feel that longing for God to make right that which is wrong. As Christian believers, we are not individualists. We are understanding that we are a part of a society. We are a part of a culture. We're part of a community. And when we long for righteousness in society, it compels us to engage on matters of truth and reality, to see righteousness reign. And I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what sphere of influence you operate in, whether it's business, sports, education, politics, arts, whatever. We're called to pursue and long for righteousness in the sense of being salt and light, aspects of moral preservation in a fallen world that God is redeeming through the gospel. And in all of that, Jesus is saying, this is what my disciples want. They long for a right relationship with God. They long for a transformed life. And they long for a world transformed by God's grace as well. And with that longing, what does God promise? You see it still in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. True satisfaction. True satisfaction, of course, is contrasted from a false righteousness, self-righteousness. I think about it this way. Spent a lot of time um, in the summer growing up on the East Coast. My parents, my grandparents had a uh, a home they lived on uh, the New Jersey shore and I always wondered why I couldn't drink salt water I'm thirsty it's water let me drink it right you cannot do you know this I hope you understand this you can't drink salt water and quench your thirst because your kidneys can't process the salt and actually the percentage of salt content is only one percent above what your body can handle but if you imagine being lost at sea and dying of thirst, perhaps, you cannot drink salt water again because your kidneys can't process the content of salt. And if you do drink the salt water, what your body ends up doing is using the existing fresh water in your body to dilute the salt water. And so what happens when you're thirsty, you drink the salt water, your body dehydrates itself of its fresh water, and you end up dying of dehydration from drinking. So it is if we try to satisfy ourselves with the salt water of self-righteousness. Which is why Jesus offers, John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never thirst. And I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. There is a sense in which when we come to Jesus, we are 
totally satisfied and we don't need to long anymore for someone else because there's no one else and there is nothing else better than the grace of Jesus. There is a sense in which we are totally satisfied, but there is also a sense in which your satisfaction makes you more hungry and more thirsty. Think of it this way. Because when Jesus speaks of those who hunger and thirst, the, the, it can be translated those who continually are hungry and those who are continually thirsty. So much so, think about it this way, that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that I know who I believe in. I know who I believe in. And he has full confidence. But he also says in Philippians 3 verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to know more. There is this sense that he knows Christ, but knowing Christ makes him want to know more of Christ. People of God, are you totally satisfied with where you are spiritually? Are you absolutely content with every aspect of your spiritual life, so much so that you have no hunger and no thirst? Don't be satisfied with where you are. Jesus is inviting you in this beatitude to go deeper, to increase your affection for Jesus, to be refreshed, to be satisfied again with the love of Christ. If you can think perhaps, maybe there was a season of your life when Jesus was so precious to you and life happens and suddenly he becomes important and you give him some time but not as much as you used to. You know a prayer that you can pray that I'm confident that God will answer? Lord, help me to hunger and thirst for you more. Help me to grow as a Christian disciple. Perhaps using the words of Psalm 90 verse 14. Lord, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad all of my days. And so people of God, Jesus is saying to us, this is what it means to be a part of my kingdom. This is what it means to long, to yearn and hunger and be thirsty for the righteousness of God and then delight in it and be satisfied with it and be so satisfied with it that you can't wait to get more and then more. And what you must know about the love of Jesus is that his love is an infinite ocean that you will never drain. And coming to him, we must continually come saying, Lord, I am hungry, fill me. Lord, I am thirsty, satisfy me. And when you do, mark it as true, he will. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of covenant-keeping love and faithfulness. And Lord, we are a people who are in covenant union with you. And yet, Lord, we struggle Yet, Lord, we are feeble and our strength fails us. Oh, Father, have mercy upon us all today. Look upon us as your children and be kind and gracious to us and give to us a greater hunger and a deeper thirst for your truth, for your ways, for walking in ways that are obedient to you that you truly delight in. Father, transform us by the power of your spirit, we pray, so that we might be truly salt and light in a world that needs to know the truth. Lord, bless us, your people today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org.
May God bless and keep you.